Cambridge uh, in the UK, um, they have a nice program in the business school, which is sort of a part-time entrepreneurship program, uh, uh, kind of like an MBA, but for entrepreneurs, and you can focus on healthcare as well. And when we got there, on the very first day, everybody was really proud and happy and meeting all these people. And we had our inaugural lecture. And uh, one of the first things that the lecturer said was, uh, so warm welcome, you know, in British fashion, uh, charming everybody, you've been great. We didn't accept a lot of people, blah, 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 blah. Um, and we also understand that you come here to learn a lot of new things, which is also uh, what we're here for. And we would gladly do. And then they said, however, we need to alert you to the fact that uh, the, your, your success as an entrepreneur is most likely going to hinge on your ability to unlearn. Because um, many of the things that made you so successful that we want to accept you here are also going to be uh, habits and thought patterns and, and so on that will prevent you from becoming successful in what you aspire to do now. Uh, so the problem with what you need to unlearn is that it's much more difficult to teach that. Uh, there is no recipe. We can nudge you. We can make you think about things. But that's for you to find out. Here's a couple hard questions for you. How early is too early to diagnose disease? And how can we effectively leverage today's digital innovations to provide healthcare outside of a clinical setting? Welcome back to How It's Med, the podcast where we chat with the people who are shaping the future of health tech and healthcare. My name is Jeff, and on this podcast, we hear about the stories, secrets, and skills of medical innovators, creators, investors, and the occasional medical card game creator so that you too can understand where our healthcare systems are going next. This time, we've got one from the vault, part two of our interview with Dr. Sven Youngman, the current co-founder and CEO of Halitus, a medical diagnostics company, the previous CMO and partner at Founders Lane, which was recently acquired by Creative Doc, and so, so much more. Let's get started. First off, transitioning into the role of the CMO, um, just without any context as someone who was practicing as a resident, that mm. must have been confusing. You had to had, had, had learn a lot on the go. Are there any stories that you think best exemplify the, the, the whirlwind that must have happened then during that transition into serving as a CMO? Oh, well, uh, um, I think there's several components. So one is also the emotional part of it, uh, which if you, if you, if you, if you suddenly go on an untreaded path, uh, there's this component of not knowing how to walk that path. But there's also this component of people being very confused why you're leaving this path, right? So you have people telling you, but you went to medical school for six years and, and you owe it to society. Do you know how much it costs to study medicine? Uh, do you know how much costs society, right? And we yeah, question. Um, or, uh, or they say, but you know, somebody else could have taken your medical, uh, study seat and, and now you're wasting it uh, by going out. Um, some doctors, some colleagues that are really valued. And, and actually we had another conversation recently and now it's all good. But for quite a while, um, there was one guy, he felt like I've been corrupted now. He was like, oh, the money bought you. To me, it seemed like I was going to take an education Sith Lord ship on Death Star or something like that. If, if, if that affects, you know, how, um, how he perceived me then suddenly. So, so you have, you have all of these things. And then you also have a lot of really well-meant advice where somebody says, oh, but you should finish your residency. Otherwise you're not a real doctor. Uh, and then you have nothing to go back to and so on. It's, it's all well-meant advice, but it comes from people who have only seen this world. So how are they able to, um, to give you proper advice? So, um, 
what I've done was then surround myself with a lot of people who are from the other side of, the, of this world. So people who work in startup or venture capitalists and, and that, and, and just hearing how they think about things and how much also understanding how much they don't understand about this clinical part was very, very crucial, um, to understanding where my role would be and to stop, um, hearing all the doubts that are sort of very one-sided from the clinical point of view, right? I think that's, that's one thing. That sounds so, so emotionally difficult, being able to navigate mm -hmm. all that uncertainty, all that feedback from people who wish well, but who are pushing back, back against what you do from, from the side of, you know, a, a, a community that you've worked with for so long. Yeah. But I guess, how did you resolve that, that conflict in terms of going to the other side? Because that's something that I've heard of here as well in Canada. I mean, similar to uh, Germany, there's uh, a very, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, there's a very, uh, th there's a public sector um, of uh, version of mm -hmm. healthcare, um, and that mm -hmm. doesn't exactly line up with the startup -y world. So how did you, I guess, bridge that yeah. gap with those who voice that concern? Yeah. So in, in the beginning, I think I went through several phases. In the beginning, I took them very seriously and I doubted myself. Then I started to realize, okay, it's just a different point of view. And I was very accepting of it. And then I reached a point where I was extremely frustrated by my medical colleagues. And uh, one example is in, um, I assume it's similar in everywhere, but uh, even if you do a simple study with an app uh, that you want to test on patients. Uh, so in our case, we had this idea that if somebody gets a first diagnosis of cancer, knowing that they remember really, really little of this first conversation because they're too stressed out. We wanted to give them an app that really gives them personalized information about their condition, what happens next, what they can do and so on and so on. So they don't have to go to Google and get confused and scared. Mm -hmm. uh, but this personalization would happen uh, thanks to the input that the doctor gives to, to this, to this app. And it would be the oncologist that has been talking to the patient, right? So in my view, I was augmenting. Uh, the doctors and helping them to, to have better educated patients. Right? Uh, and with that and all full confidence, I walked to the ethics committee hearing where I had to pre present the case and, and, and people were extremely aggressive towards me. There were like a series of doctors, part of this committee, and then one patient representative who was neutral. And so I said, Oh, hello. Good evening. They said, just sit down. Okay. So I thought, what's going on here? Like I was in court or something, right? So I sit there and then they asked me a couple of questions and, and it's, it's pretty tense in the tone and so on. And then after one, I said, yeah, so what's, I'm sorry, what's going on here? And then one guy said, the psychiatrist, he says, okay, I mean, I don't want to take this too far, but since this is an ethics committee, I might as well tell you that I think it's highly unethical what you're doing here. I'm like, okay. So why is that? And he said, well, don't take us for stupid. We all know what's going on here. And I, can you help me? Because I'm not seeing it. And he said, well, you're trying to get rid of doctors. And I said, oh, now, uh, I think all of us in this room have treated cancer patients. And I think all of us know how stressed out they are. And all of us have read the studies, how much people actually remember from the very first conversation of breaking the bad news of somebody having cancer. And it's at best, if they remember your gender as a doctor, that's already great. So. Uh, also, if you have read the application and you might have seen that we can only tailor it depending on the information we get from the doctors. So I don't see how I can make them redundant. And he said, oh yeah, I think you should just stop taking us for fools, right? 
And then I said, okay, listen, uh, since we're talking frankly here, on my view, there are only two, two, two ways this can go. Either us doctors, we keep in our little world, in our little ivory tower, and we judge everybody who's trying to bring in innovation. Uh, but then what's going to happen is that, and I'm sorry for the American and Chinese listeners, but I had to play that card. I said, you will have all the big GAFAs from the US and you will all have all the big corporates from China with different legal and ethical and cultural systems uh, developing technologies that will be so advanced that people here will demand them. But then we will have to play by their rules and we won't have it according to our own ethics and your committee will not mean anything to them. Um, the other option is that instead of being so judgmental, we start to have active conversations with these innovators and we help them make sure that things are evidence-based and in line with what we think is good medical practice. But I'm telling you that the option that you're driving here right now uh, is not going to have very strong success. And, and so I'm here to make sure that we, with, we build bridges and that we create meaningful innovations together. So please help me with that. The thing went through in the end of the day, but I thought, what is this conversation I'm having, right? And that's where uh, I end up being very frustrated. So there, there, there has been a, a transition in my thinking too, right? Yeah. Jeez, that just hearing that story was like absolutely shocking. Hearing it like being frankly spoken like that, um, and mm. I can't imagine how it must have felt to deal with that and to continue to deal with that day in and day out. Yeah. Wow. It changed, you know, I think uh, I've learned my lessons and uh, I've also seen, I have a good mentor in, uh, in Oxford. He's, uh, the name is Muir Gray. Uh, he's been knighted also for his services in the health system and so on. And I, I once wrote him a long email and I said, Hey Muir, I'm really frustrated and uh, this and this keeps happening and so on. A similar story to this. And, and he just answered me and this is his fashion. So he's Scottish, right? And I could even hear his accent, but I can't imitate him for him. He, he just goes like, Great, Sven, keep irritating, full stop. And that, that was the message. Um, and, and his, his motto is always, it's better to irritate than to stimulate. Um, that, that's how he keeps driving change. And, and I think if, if you accept that as your own role, right, as one past part of the piece, there are people who preserve and that's also important, but there are also people who need to challenge and, and to not give up on it. And of course, you will face some rejection and judgment that you, that you don't want to identify with. Nobody wants to be called unethical, especially not hmm. as, a, as a doctor, but. Um, yeah, that's a that's weighty, weighty before. phrase in medicine to, to yeah. be called unethical. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. Speaking of unlearning, I mean, like unlearning the, the, I guess the, the, the attachment to be like that, that sole identity of being a public sector doctor must have taken some, mm. a, a lot of strength. But you also mentioned that unlearning is very, very important. That, that's something that I haven't heard before. Can you explain that more and, you know, yeah. how you came to the conclusion? So, um, it's, uh, I mean, to be honest, it's actually something that, uh, at some point when I, when I started jumping into this world, I decided I want to upskill myself a little bit, uh, and Cambridge, uh, in the UK, um, they have a nice program in the business school, which is sort of a part-time entrepreneurship program, uh. Uh, kind of like an MBA, but for entrepreneurs and you can focus on healthcare as well. And when we got there on the very first day, everybody was really proud and happy and meeting all these people. And we had our inaugural lecture. And uh, one of the first things that the lecturer said was, uh, 
so warm welcome, you know, in British fashion, uh, charming everybody. You've been great. We didn't accept a lot of people, blah, 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 blah. Um, and we also understand that you come here to learn a lot of new things, which is also uh, what we're here for. And we would gladly do. And then they said, however, we need to alert you to the fact that uh, the your, your success as an entrepreneur is most likely going to hinge on your ability to unlearn. Because um, many of the things that made you so successful that we want to accept you here are also going to be uh, habits and thought patterns and, and, and so on that will prevent you from becoming successful in what you aspire to do now. Uh, so the problem with what you need to unlearn is that it's much more difficult to teach that. Uh, there is no recipe. We can nudge you. We can make you think about things. But that's for you to find out. And um, and it's very true. And and I keep learning that. And I keep uh, needing to unlearn. And, and try. I constantly hunt for the things I need to unlearn. Um, it, it's it, as in many things in life. Right? We always think about what can we add? What can we add? Right? Do more of this. Do more of this. But what can we subtract? Or subtract is, is an equally important question. If, um, How would you more clearly phrase what you need to unlearn um, in yeah. terms of medicine, what you need to learn when it mm -hmm. comes to adapting to the digital space? Right. So many things, but just to give you like some, some concrete uh, thoughts on this. Um, one thing is normally as a doctor, you are not uh, in charge of generating demand for your pay. So, you're in the emergency room and then somebody comes in because they have a problem because they've been brought in by ambulance. Uh, we had a discussion with our hospital management where they sometimes that somebody came to us and said, Oh, uh, we're not having enough patients this year. You need to bring in more patients. And we all looked at each other and we said, so what do we do? We, we, I don't know. We beat up people on the street and we pull them. What, what is the, should we cough into people's faces on our way home? I don't know. I don't no, know. What's, no. what's your suggestion there? Right. Um, but it's not something we're used to, right? Uh, there's external demand. If you're an entrepreneur, there is a void. There is nothing. And you have to actually understand, okay, what, how do I create work for myself? First and for, uh, firstly, and then secondly, how do I prioritize it? And what do I decide to ignore out of the things that I think are worth doing? Um, and how do I find out very quickly if it's still worth doing it? Right. So it, it's, it's the opposite where you have to create something out of nothing. And the other one is you have to deal with things as they come. The other part of it is that uh, as doctors often we're really good at, you can just throw anything at, at a doctor and they will deal with it, right? Um, but they're not so good at uh, necessarily planning ahead or at questioning the way they do things. So in, if, if you go on a, in a typical office of a doctor or an emergency room and you look at how the, the things are sorted in the, um, uh, what's it called? In the, uh, uh, not the, um, oh, I'm lacking a word there. Uh, the, the, the table where, you know, you have all of the, the, the items in it, the syringes and what's that called? Where you serve all the operating tape? What? No, the, the stuff in the emergency room with, you know, the needles, the scalpel blades, and you can pull them out. And emergency. The sure. Let's go with that. So let's say if, if somebody looks at the drawers, is the stuff that's needed the most, is that always on the top drawer or not? Like the doctors don't wonder about these things, right? You, hmm. You're never thinking about how can I optimize my processes? How can I, um, you know, do more than just this one-on-one -on -one thing? And doctors often only think, how do I optimize the resources for this one patient? How do I do the best for my patient? They don't think about the opportunity cost that they create by overly focusing on one patient and not on the other or you know, by creating a lot of costs that might be useful in a kindergarten, whatever, right? So you, you don't have this 
this thinking beyond what's immediately in front of you. Another thing I think that, that I often see with doctors is where it's this first do no harm principle, which is great. Uh, and we have to be very risk averse in medicine. Um, but in, in a startup space, you can afford to make mistakes often. Uh, so there's this mantra of, you know, fail fast, fail early, fail often, fail forward, which to a doctor sounds like kill fast, kill early, kill often. Um, and, and, and we're afraid of that, right? But we need to get better at uh, allowing mistakes where it's safe to make mistakes. And we need yeah. to understand where it's, where it's not okay to make the mistakes, but we need to be more differentiated there. And what I often see with doctors is that they always come up with this. There's this one exception why this whole thing doesn't work. So you might say, I have this new app. And then they would tell you, oh yeah, but the other day I had a patient, they uh, had no arms. Uh, and then you say, great, but then they can use voice activation. Yeah, but what if, you know, they can't speak? And, and then so you, you always have this uh, uh, destroying ideas by, by seeing too many problems and too many complexities rather than saying, okay, let's, let, I don't know, let's do the try and let's see what happens, right? It's, I don't mean to generalize. I'm sure a lot of people who listen to your uh, podcast, of course, are, uh, have a different mindset, but I can also imagine that many of them have, have witnessed something similar when they engage with, with their colleagues. Yeah, I think that was a great general summary overall. But I guess when we talked offline, you also mentioned the, the importance of, in, in your work right now, uh, psychological safety, bringing up clashing ideas. And I think that as I mm. talk to people who are involved in healthcare improvement here as well, that's actually becoming more popular in North America health, North American healthcare circles as well. So can you tell us a little bit about how you apply that to the, the circumstances in which you work right now? Psychological safety? Yeah. 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 Um, so I think one is, um, always being aware of one's own, uh, effect on others. So especially if you're a doctor, I feel like often people tend to give you much more authority than you maybe deserve. Um, because, you know, you have this certain societal role, but especially then if you talk about topics related to medicine, then, then your word automatically overrules, uh, that of others. And I, I see sometimes that doctors don't understand how to differentiate, you know, opinion versus facts. So, you know, we had a, we had a doctor who strongly opposed that we would give, give out Amazon vouchers for, uh, patients who would, uh, agree that we interviewed them. And the only reason was is because he felt Amazon was unethical again, right? And then I had to educate him that this is not his place to give my personal ethical statements into a development of a product or whatever. Um, and that he has to separate that from the, the factual thing. So of course he can state his own concerns, but he can't do it with the same level of authority as if he talks about, uh, if, I don't know, you can't cut the aortha, right? That, that's a, that, that's where he can be very clear, but he can't be very clear on things where it's more of an uh, opinion open to debate. So it's, it's, this is the first thing, like, um, stepping back, knowing one's own, uh, effects on others and sometimes rather uh, shutting up a bit more than you otherwise would, asking a bit more, voicing a bit more doubts, even those own convictions. Um, what I like to do a lot is, is really sort of getting other people's opinions first. And still, you know, because I'm a partner and the CMO, um, I have some of my younger team members, they say, I hope it's okay if I tell you this, but I don't like how we blah, blah, blah. And then I, I spend most of the time actually not talking about the recommendation first, but about the fact that she feels like it might not be okay. And yeah. you know, keep telling her, you know, I, I wish we get to the point where you don't feel uncomfortable telling me this because otherwise I have a problem because in my role, people will stop telling me things and, and then I get biased. Um, so I, but it's constant work 
of doing that. And it's especially difficult if you work in very interdisciplinary teams, um, where people, you know, come with different ways of communicating, of reasoning and so on. So it's also important to spend a lot of time understanding and discussing with people how they think, how much time they need to digest information in order to answer a decision, yada, yada. Um, I think that's, that's very important and showing vulnerability, uh, which is not something I'm seeing that often in healthcare. Yeah. That, that's fascinating. It seems like you're adopting as a segue, the, the, the role of a leader, <laughs> healthcare leader. So I, I just flashing back to that point in the conversation where you mentioned mm. healthcare archetypes. I've always had a, uh, a, a guilty obsession with Myers-Briggs archetypes because people like categories themselves. <laughs> and I, I tend to do that as well. But can you describe mm. each of those archetypes more in depth? Um, and I, I guess some examples of, I guess, people who you've encountered, um, where, where they've found success in each of those roles. Uh, uh yes. So, um, maybe, uh, uh, I, I could, um, I could, uh, I could maybe also share an article that, I, that I've written, um, sure. which we published in, it's in English actually. Um, so we, um, first of all, we, we talk a lot about this concept of hybrids. So it's, it's medical doctor plus X, right? You have to have this, this grounded experience. Um, and then this X could be, uh, let's say expertise in analytics, could be in digital innovation, could be business acumen, um, or, or whatever else it is. And, and then you find job titles, which are not really protected yet or not, you know, or not, not clearly defined, but do you have anything from the chief medical officer to the medical innovation lead, venture developers, digital health product manager, uh, you have content developers. And then, as I said, you have these healthcare investors and so on. Um, so there's, it, it's, it's still vague and you can always be more than one of these archetypes, right? Uh, yeah. then it might just be a, a combination of things, right? Um, but what we argue is, um, uh, that, that there's the builder, uh, a builder clinician, if you want, uh, who works essentially at the intersection of evidence-based healthcare and health engineering. Um, engineering can be hardware, can be digital, can be machine learning. Uh, whatever it is. Um, but the problem that these engineers often have is that they, um, even, I mean, they can be very brilliant. And I work with some brilliant ones who are really deep into the healthcare space, but they often don't know how to really make something fit. So for example, if, if we look at this, um, this tool that we're building, um, we can detect a lot of biomarkers and there are some biomarkers that are for COVID. And then we thought, okay, let's do a COVID detection device. Um, but then my thinking was, if I'm a doctor and I let somebody blow into it, I would actually like to know if it's not COVID, but the person still has, you know, sweating and coughing and so on, what could it be? Maybe it's, uh, uh, I don't know, bacterial. And we went to talk to some doctors and interviewed them. And that's sort of my role as the, the UX guy or the user researcher in the medical context. And I found out that doctors don't care so much about whether it's bacterial or viral because they say it takes me a blood test and I can instantly see it. I look at the, 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 the CRP and I, I look at, um, procalcitonin, uh, and I see the x-ray and I'm, it's, it's very clear to me, uh, when it's a, an actual pneumonia. So I, it doesn't add too much value. It's nicer, mm -hmm. but it doesn't add value. Mm -hmm. However, if you could tell me if it is viral, uh, whether it's COVID or influenza or RSV, that would change things for me. So then. You know, I can take that back to the, to the engineers and say, uh, guys, can we please focus on these biomarkers because they serve more than the others, yada, yada. 
Um, and, and that then becomes quite, uh, quite helpful. So that's why, you know, being at this intersection or I was working with engineers where we had a big data set of, I don't know, 150,000 patients. And, um, we were looking at the lab values and then we saw that leukocytes sometimes were spelled leukocytes. Sometimes they were spelled L-E-U. Sometimes they were just L. Then there was L-E-U-C or L-E-U-K, not a German version, different synonyms for the same. And then for each of the synonyms, you had different reference ranges. And sometimes they were just minimally, uh, you know, 0.1 left shifted or something like that. That was okay. Sometimes it was completely different. Turns out, okay, this was liquor, uh, leukocytes and so on. There is no machine learning engineer or mathematician or very few probably who will feel comfortable, uh, analyzing these data sets and making sense of what's going on. <laughs> but if you have a medical training and if you understand, okay, this has been taken first, then they took this other test. That's because there they saw something, they suspected this and, and you can question the data and then turn that into algorithms. Um, it's a different ball game. And, and so that would be the builder case. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I know that we're short on time, so I'll ask specifically yeah. about one other archetype and that's specifically uh -huh. the healer. You, you talked a little bit about that. They, they work in the space of healthcare themselves. They heal people still, but they have fluency, um, in the digital world. What specifically do you mean by that? And I guess, what do they offer to the advancement of adoption of digital technologies in healthcare? Why are they important? Yeah. Yeah. So the healer would be the architect that closest to what people think of today when they hear the word physician, right? Uh, they are the, in the role that's closest to the patient. Um, and probably even, you know, no matter how much things are going to change now in the next decade or so, they are, they're still going to be the majority of the doctors working in on the front lines of healthcare with patients, I think. Um, but, uh, there are some things that are changing. So one is, we're moving a lot from analog to virtual or from manual to automated care. Uh, and you need people who are able to navigate that. The, the simplest thing would be, uh, being really comfortable using telemedicine, but telemedicine is not just zoom. Uh, it can mean also, you know, uh, having remote patient monitoring tools, um, um, doing virtual visits, uh, prescribing things, doing follow-ups, measuring outcomes. And so on and so on. So there, there's there's a lot of how the interface to so the patient changes. That would be the the, the front end <laughs> in a way. Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing is, uh, how do you how do you make use of data? Um, in, at Stanford, uh, they talk a lot about the rise of the data driven physician. Mm -hmm. And uh, if at some point we have big databases with a lot of patients, and now you have a patient who has some rare disease X. Um, you can, of course, go to PubMed and you can, of course, you know, try to find similar cases. Maybe you found you have another colleague you can talk to, um, but that's the old way of doing things. And probably in the future, you will be able to, um, to, to, to parse through large, large amounts of data, including, you know, genetic data, ambient uh, technologies, wearables, uh, electronic health records, wh whatever you have, and then interrogate that data to find uh, I don't know, let's say eight or 10 other people with the same rare disease and to figure out, okay, what worked for them? What have these people received? You might not have never seen them. You might not know the colleagues who treated them, but you will be able to, to derive some insights that will help you to form a hypothesis on how you can heal, uh, this new patient in front of you, like you previously wouldn't be able to. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, that requires, um, that requires more of this. And then finally, um, our treatments are expanding. We're not doing only knives and pills and so on. 
uh, but we're also doing apps these days, right? So digital therapeutics is a, is a thing. Um, how do you find out if you prescribe app A or B? How do you see if it's effective? How do you know who it might be working better for? At the moment, the approach is when I'm giving it to 10 patients and then I hear their feedback and then the next guy benefits from the feedback I'm getting. But that's not how medicine should be. That's intuitive medicine. We want to be precise, right? We want to mm -hmm. be evidence-based. Um, and so I think that's, that's something that, that will also be more in there. That's fascinating. Fields. It's like the, the, the modern or futuristic equivalent of someone who practices evidence-based medicine. They, they know mm. what solutions there are out there and they're comfortable mm. working with data to best serve the patient, patients at hand. And I think that's incredibly noble being able to move with the times yeah. that we can offer the best available for the patients at hand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. So, I mean, you, you, you talked a lot about data there, and it seems like a lot of your work after medicine has been in working mm -hmm. with data-driven startups. Um, why, why specifically that pivot? Uh, uh, wow, I never asked myself. I like questions, by the way. This is real brilliant at this. Um, we should have a separate conversation about that. I think there's, there are a lot of talents that you, I mean, that, that you shouldn't leave under the tape. Um, I mean, you're not because you're doing this, but I think you can do more of it. Um, where, where was I? Um, why data? So I, it's of course, because I mean, most of the startups want to do something with data. There's a big hype around it. Uh, it increases your valuations. If you say we're data driven there, are, by the way, a lot of startups that claim to be, uh, machine learning or artificial intelligence, and it's just logistic regressions. Uh, if, if you look under the hood, so th there's a big hype. Um, and I wouldn't even underscore with the things that I'm doing that the biggest thing is data, right? So if I look at this, the thing I'm doing with the Russian, many people say, oh, so you're doing big data. Well, maybe kind of, but what it's really about what the innovation is that is we're, we're making biomarkers visible that were invisible before and we're using machine learning to interpret them. So yeah, we're, you know, generating new data sources. Um, fair enough. Um, but I wouldn't say that this is the only or this is the key thing only one component right um with the other things i'm doing is uh you know it, the beauty about of digital is it doesn't only make things more efficient because you don't have to work for facts or type off like a report into your computer and, and all of that the beauty is that it can really change how we go about doing things and one thing is uh and that's that's what i'm truly passionate about is the change from a reactive healthcare system to a proactive healthcare system. Reactive means person uh, suddenly realizes uh, their, their, their half of their face is, is, is not movable and their left arm is down or whatever, and they have a stroke, and then they go to the uh, emergency department and then the, uh, everybody says, oh, time is brain, time is brain. But we shouldn't be at that point. Now we have, suddenly we have a watch um, that can detect if you have arrhythmia and warn you many, many, many years before you would even get a stroke uh, because of your arrhythmia. So that's proactive, right? Um, or people were thinking maybe we can hear, uh, changes in the voice with COVID patients before they realize that they're infected. But that, that's the mindset, uh, where I think it's really worthwhile working on it. But to be proactive, it's not enough to just know that something happens. You, you can't just have the sensing. You also need to have the acting, just like with your reflexes and the muscles. Um, and so it's equally important to have people who work on I don't know, the, the re-engineering of cells on new therapeutics, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it, I find it also very interesting. I ended up more on the sensing space, uh, which to be frank is also 
a matter of opportunity. Just people approached me for it. And it's always important um, to have the right people to work with. Right? That I mean, that's also, maybe that's the key answer to your question rather than me rambling around. But um, one thing in entrepreneurship is often uh, what the, what's the bird you have in your hand, right? So start from where you are. Yeah. Uh, of course, you have a thousand ideas of how the world should look, um, but it starts with the people you have around you, the people who, it starts with who you know, what you know, and, um, uh, and, and, and what is within your reach in the mm -hmm. end of the day mm -hmm. and with who you are and then iterate from there. That's, I, I think that's perhaps the, the, the most precise way to put it, but I mean, I think a lot of your, a lot of your work has been shaped around what tools, again, as you said, are available to you and what's become popular with the times using the immense amount of data that we now have that we didn't have before mm. to improve what you view as the problems that we face as a healthcare system, make sure that healthcare is yeah. proactive instead of reactive, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, I recognize that we're running short on time. So there's, there's one thing that I always ask our guests is for you yeah. to plug our pluggables. And, uh, you, you, you mentioned that you have a couple social media profiles that you want to push out. Tell me about them. Oh, cheers. So, uh, I have things planned for the, uh, for the U.S. market. So you mentioned the card game. We're working on it and I'm sorry, U.S. and Canada. Um, we exist. Uh, exist. Thank you. You exist. Yeah, we exist. It's, 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 it's uh, actually Canada is very prominent over here in terms of, uh, appearing really? in the news and so on. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you have a lot of uh, universities that are well known here too, and so on. Uh, I even spent, uh, I think it was a week uh, close to Calgary in, in some lakes fishing, and it's, it's gorgeous yeah. there. So I have a, I have a very clear, very positive view of, uh, of Canada, and I miss it. Um, good save, good save. So, yeah, no, honestly. Um, uh, but where was I? Um, pluggables. So yeah, I, I mean, exactly. So I, I wish I could send you the, the stuff for the, uh, for the products that are coming out and, and get some feedback on that. Uh, but I would also love to stay in touch. Uh, one is my LinkedIn. It's, uh, LinkedIn and the slash the handle is Sven Jungmann. My first name, last name spelled together. And my Twitter handle, I think is, <laughs> uh, it's Jungmann, then uh, a lower dash Sven. How do you spell uh, young? Man? I think that's be. the important thing uh, um, here. Actually, it's S, then the lower dash, and then J U N G M A N N, uh, which is the German for young man, really. Well, you certainly look like a young man, barely, <laughs> barely past your twenties. Um, well, we'll 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 stop here. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Very excited. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of How It's Med. If you liked what you heard, the best way to support us is to go to your podcast platform, be it Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever you like, and to give us a rating and a recommendation or a comment so that others can best find us. If you can't do that, then we'd really appreciate it if you could share your favorite episode with those that you care about and who you think would find our work interesting. Till next time.